sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All these books surrounding you are those used to research our show and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be uh, directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I thought you said you were ready to record. We, we can do this tomorrow. I'm you... ready to record. So it seems, as per our usual recording arrangement, we have some uh, unresolved tension. Mrs. Carswell is upset about a noisy closet upstairs. The rug, not the closet. Your bare skin rug. Locked in a closet at your request. You know there's something wrong up there. You were with me when we heard the noises. It's a noisy rug. You know what I'm talking about. That was a shapeshifter. The bear? Mr. Petrovich. Was a terrible gardener. You're the one who got the old granny witch involved and made silver bullets. You knew it was more than a bear. Well, what am I supposed to do? Get the rug exercised? I don't know. Make some calls. Uh, who? A rug cleaner? Hello, do you exercise rugs? Ask that old witch, the Russian lady. Ukrainian, if you mean Mr. Chorney's mother. Well, she got you started on all this. Let her fix it. I don't think that's an option. Mr. Chorney's still not talking to me because I broke a bottle of his vodka. Why don't you ask one of those pen pals you spend so much time writing? They're not local. You'd have to fly them out to do anything. I would if they were a priest or actually had some relevant skills. One of them is very spiritual. I'm not having anyone burn sage in this house. I just want to make that clear up front. They might fly out themselves if you were a little more welcoming. I am. In my way. Then, can I do my on-air hellos? You want to say hello to your pen pals again? Yes. Sure. Anything that's not talking about the rug. Go ahead, say your hellos, and then we'll start. Hello to Jenny, Geraldine, Andrea, Lily, Willa, Michelle, and Lorna. Is that all? And Jessica. We just started communicating, but I'd like to include her, too. All right, then. I hope one of them's a priest or a rug doctor. Anyway, episode 66, Mermen and More Marvels of the Northern Seas. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle truly only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. I'll have more on Patreon at the end of our show.
In keeping with my preference for starting shows off with a loud audio clip, we're hearing a bit from the television show Vikings. As I was not up on this show, it fell to a listener to let me know that the uh, Norse world serpent Jormungandr, discussed in our last episode, puts in a cameo menacing a ship with the central characters aboard in the uh, second part of season six of this show, uh, episode 13 to be precise. There is also a scene in which the legend of Thor's fishing trip encounter with the monster is discussed. One day, the god Thor, son of Earth, was fishing in the sea for the serpent using a bull's head for bait. We won't actually be talking about Jormungandr in this episode, but I do want to briefly return to the Kraken. Uh, Let's hear what's uh, probably the earliest reference to this creature. There is a fish not yet mentioned, which it is scarcely advisable to speak about on account of its size, which to most men will seem incredible. There are, moreover, but very few who can tell anything definite about it, inasmuch as it is rarely seen by men. In our language, it is usually called the Kraken. This is from a 13th century Norwegian text, probably written around 1250. Its uh, Old Norse title translates as King's Mirror. As it was intended as an all-encompassing reflection of the world of politics, morality, and the natural order, written for the purpose of educating the son of uh, King uh, Håkon Håkonsson of Norway. Given this, it takes the form of a dialogue between a wise father and an eager-to-learn son. Um, Other than emphasizing the Kraken's tremendous size and the fact that it's rarely seen, the text describes the monster's manner of eating, uh, vomiting digested food to lure in more food, or fish who want to eat that sort of thing. The the king also observes that only two specimens of this colossal beast are believed to exist, as the oceans could uh, scarcely accommodate more. What's particularly interesting about this reference to the monster is that it occurs amid discussions of various whales. No uh, serpentine coils or tentacles or crab claws are mentioned, suggesting that at this early point in its mythology, the kraken would have been imagined as something like a particularly gargantuan whale. In Norwegian and Icelandic folklore, as we'll see, whales are often nothing like the creatures we know, There are dozens of uh, fantastic variants of both good and evil nature. The evil whales, which are called Ichkveli in Iceland, seem also to be referenced in The King's Mirror. They roam about in all the seas looking for ships, and when they find one, they leap up, for in that way they are able to sink and destroy it more quickly. The Ichkveli receive a particularly good treatment in an article from 1900 we'll be referencing, one by Olaf Davidson in volume 36 of the Scottish Review called The Folklore of Icelandic Fishes. Remarking on the malicious nature of these monsters, he writes, So greedy are they after human flesh that they will remain for a whole year or more near any spot where they have once found their favorite food. Fishermen, therefore, 
Avoid for a long time those fishing grounds where a boat's crew has perished in this fashion. These creatures were so feared, even at the time of Dafidson's writing to some extent, that fishermen dared not to utter the word Ichikveli, preferring to call them merely the big fish or some other such circumlocution, as the creatures were said to appear where their name was spoken. Those who offend against this rule render themselves liable to a fine, which usually consists in handing over a portion of their food to their mates, if they reached land safe and sound. Even words sounding like Ichikveli are to be avoided. A variety of substances may be taken aboard and or uh, thrown into the surrounding sea to drive off these monsters, with the uh, cow or uh, sheep dung being the most reliable and juniper or sulfur also sometimes employed. Beating the water or shouting may also help drive away these monsters. Eating the flesh of the Ichikveli is strictly forbidden. Those who consume it may not only sicken or die, but absorb some of the creature's malevolent nature. Already in the King's Mirror, you find uh, restrictions differentiating good and evil whales as those with flesh fit or unfit to consume. The good whales, thankfully, not only bear enmity against the evil, but will defend sailors from the predations of their uh, malevolent cousins. For this reason, an offense against a good whale is particularly damnable. Davidson relates a story of one such unfortunate behavior. After a day of fishing under the protection of a good whale, whom the fishermen pass as they row to land, one of the crew threw a stone into its blowhole, thus preventing it from breathing and causing its death. Before long, this man was affected with an unknown disease and rotted away while still alive. A similar plugged blowhole story is uh, related with uh, the crew warning the uh, thrower of the stone that thanks to his evil deed, he must now avoid the sea entirely for the next 20 years. Advice that the uh, perpetrator takes seriously for 18, but not 20. But at the end of that time, he could refrain no longer and went out to fish. During the day, a whale swam up to the boat, thrust its tail into it, and swept the man overboard. Others say that it put its tongue round him and swallowed him. It was supposed that this whale was the mate of the one that the man had killed. So uh, let's take a look at a few specific species of these uh, mythic whales. First, there is the Lingbakersh, which means heatherback, as its back, when lying on the surface of the water, is often mistaken for a landmass overgrown with heather. It's the largest of the whales, and Davidson informs us that because of its size, the ocean can only support one of these creatures, which will continue to live till the end of the world. There are stories of sailors who have mistaken the heatherback for an island and landing on the creature and traversing its surface, which can be uh, literally uh, covered with heather or grass. In uh, one tale Davidson relates, they remain camped on the creature for two days until suddenly finding the ground shifting a bit beneath them and making for the boats as quickly as possible, of course. 
Because of its size and relatively benign nature, the heatherback seems to be more in a class unto itself and uh, less a member of the uh, evil Ichkveli. But the same cannot be said for the Ravekambingish, or a red crest named for its overall color and the um, rooster-like comb it sports. Davidson writes, It is asserted that the red crest is so insanely fond of destroying boats that if one escapes him and he does not find another one the same day, he will kill himself out of pure chagrin. He will also lie on the surface of the sea for half a month without moving, as if he was stone dead in order to put the fishermen off their guard. One red crest is credited with having assailed 18 boats in one day, all of which it broke into pieces. The 19th escaped only by the ingenuity of its captain, who put some clothes on a log of wood and threw this into the sea. The red crest evidently believed it to be a man and set to work to drown him, but found that the victim was no sooner put under water than he came up again. While his attention was taken up in this way, the boat's crew escaped to land. The flesh of this, the most ferocious of all the evil whales, naturally is not to be eaten, but thankfully it's also said to disappear from the pot when boiled. The uh, red crest is also associated with magic, and one legend from Kvalfjörthersh, uh, which means whale fjord, tells of a young man transformed by the elves into a ravening red crest that uh, haunts that particular fjord. Then there's the Roskvalish, or horse whale, which Davidson says, neighs like a horse, and has a horse's tail and mane, which it shakes when it comes near a boat its approach being also accompanied by tremendous waves. An account from 1751 describes a Danish vessel encountering several of these creatures. Which were from 50 to 60 feet in length. They neighed like horses, and a strong stench proceeded from them. They were shot at, but received no harm from it. The sailors were of opinion that these whales foreboded bad weather, and this turned out to be correct, for a violent gale arose in the evening. Often said to have flaps of skin hanging over its eyes, horse whales are also sometimes known as blöthtekvalish, or flap whales, or jumpers. Their horse-like leaping from the sea is attributed to these flaps, which naturally make it difficult to see and compel the monster to leap up from the water, so... They can see the land and even the lesser mountains below its body while it is in the air. At this height, it can look down from under the flaps and so contrives to see this way. Then we have the narwhal with its famous horn, which, uh, though it would seem to be the stuff of folklore, oddly is never described as a weapon turned on men or ships. Uh, more important to the creature's identity is its uh, splotchy gray and white coloration, which reminded sailors of dead bodies floating in the sea, causing the narwhal to be known as the corpse whale. This association is also related to the narwhal's imagined role as a scavenger. 
but obviously it mentions the creature working in tandem with the Red Crest, whose sole idea is to smash up boats and drown the crews. When he has done this, the narwhal sets to work and eats the men. The sighting of this creature is an evil omen for telling uh, shipwrecks, uh, storms, or other disasters. And its appearance is also usually accompanied by a foul stench, like a corpse, I suppose. All sources going back to the King's Mirror agree that the narwhal's flesh is lethal if eaten, so strike that from your menus. While uh, these are all some of the most frequently mentioned, there seem to be countless other less uh, prominent Ichkveli. There is the uh, Katkveli, or cat whale, which may have actually referred to a seal with those uh, feline whiskers, and something uh, made more probable as they were also described as being smaller and even tameable, though uh, also sometimes aggressive towards men. Uh, there is also the evil whale known as the bridal fish, described by Davidson as black as a raven but has two white streaks extending like a bridle from its eyes down to the corners of its mouth. About 1830, this whale was seen at close quarters to a Danish ship off the west coast of Iceland, but the captain saved himself and his men by his skill in the black art. The uh, ox whale is of gargantuan size, far exceeding the animal it's named for, its uh, call is earth-shakingly loud. And cases have been known of oars being knocked out of the hands of the fishermen when this whale happened to roar in the water beneath them. Its bellowing also causes cattle to rush to their death in the sea. Surely inconvenient for the herdsmen. And uh, there's also a particularly fat specimen known as the swine whale. Its fat is so strong that it immediately oozes out through the skin of any person eating it. And the shell whale. I'm not sure what its appearance has to do with shells, as it's only described as being very fat with short flippers and uh, a length of about 120 feet. but. It uh, does distinguish itself by one odd inclination. It cannot bear to hear iron filed. The sound of this drives it frantic, and if there are shallows near at hand, it rushes upon these and kills itself. Greenland and ready to sail. In hopes to find riches in hunting the wild. Well, um, you have been promised merman, so uh, it's about time to get to that. I um, should note that though I also mention uh, a female mermaid or two. These uh, creatures uh, here in these texts we'll look at are understood rather differently than the mermaid tales down on the continent or in Britain, where the storylines uh, overlap more with the fairy lore of abductions. There's uh, more of a cryptid feel to these Scandinavian accounts. Um, that is uh, an attempt to describe the creature's appearance in the uh, manner of a naturalist. 
This begins all the way back with the King's Mirror, where a merman drawn from the Greenland Sea is described as being of great size and rising straight out of the water. And with the human face, but... Above the eyes and the eyebrows, it looks more like a man with a peaked helmet on his head. It has shoulders like a man, but no hands. Its body apparently grows narrower from the shoulders down. The text describes the body tapering like an icicle, adding that no one has ever observed it closely enough to determine whether its body has scales like a fish or skin like a man. Whenever the monster has shown itself, men have always been sure that a storm would follow. A, a female mermaid is also described in the usual manner, but with a few differences, including webbed hands like a duck, and as... Having a large and terrifying face, a sloping forehead, and wide brows, a large mouth, and wrinkled cheeks. If we uh, leap ahead then to the 18th century, we find a, a similar approach to the topic taken by uh, Eric von Chopitan, uh, whose work we referenced heavily in our Kraken show. As always, his uh, writing makes use of... Uh, quotes from other sources, including this definition of mermen from the uh, German volume from 1721, the General Dictionary of Arts and Sciences. The length of this fish is six feet. Its head is oval, and the face resembles that of a man. It has a high forehead, little eyes, a flat nose, and large mouth, but has no chin. It has two arms which are short, but without joints or elbows, with hands or paws, to each of which there are four long fingers, which are not very flexible, connected to each other by a membrane, like that of the foot of a goose. Their skin is of a brownish-gray color. Pontropodon includes a representative sighting of one of these creatures that occurred in September, uh, just off the uh, coast of Landskrona, Sweden, in 1723. Sighted at some distance, resting upon the water, it was at first taken to be a corpse until it sank and quickly resurfaced. But then, according to a testimonial of the Danish crew members, he turned his face and stared at the men, which gave them a good opportunity of examining him narrowly. He stood in the same place for half of a quarter of an hour and was seen above the water down to his breast. At last they grew apprehensive of some danger and began to retire, upon which the monster blew up his cheeks and made a kind of roaring noise and then dived under the water so that they did not see him any more. In regard to his form and shape, they say he appeared to them like an old man, strong-limbed and with broad shoulders, but his arms they could not see. His head was small in proportion to the body and had short curled black hair, which did not reach below his ears. His eyes lay deep in his head and he had a meager and pinched face with a black beard that looked as if it had been cut. His skin was coarse and very full of hair. Pontropodon emphasizes that in his own diocese of Bergen and further north in Norway, there are several hundreds of persons of credit and reputation who affirm with the strongest assurances that they have seen this kind of creature. 
He includes what he regards as a particularly worthy account from 1719, uh, coming from a uh, particularly reliable observer, a uh, minister, the uh, Reverend Peter Angeld, visiting the municipality of Alstahau in Nordland. In uh, this case, observation was easier than normal, as the creature had washed ashore dead, along with uh, dead fish and the bodies of some seals, or uh, sea calves, as they're called in those days. It was of a dark gray color all over. In the lower part, it was like a fish and had a tail like that of a porpoise. The face resembled that of a man with a mouth, forehead, eyes, etc. The nose was flat and, as it were, pressed down to the face in which the nostrils had ever been very visible. The breast was not far from the head. The arms seemed to hang to the side, to which they were joined by a thin skin or membrane. The hands were, to appearance, like the paws of a sea calf. The back of this creature was very fat, and a great part of it was cut off, which, with the liver, yielded a large quantity of train oil. Uh, train oil is oil normally obtained from whale blubber. The length of this creature was much greater than what had been mentioned of any before, namely, above three fathoms. That would be more than 18 feet in length, and he appends to this description a comment about an even larger merman taken in the Adriatic, said to measure 36 feet. And uh, Patapachin believes mermen to be predators, uh, citing a letter sent to him by a Hanstrom of Borgen, Norway, who had discovered a merman and a sea calf on a rock, both dead and all over bloody, from which it is conjectured that they had killed one another. The uh, local parson, he adds, gave himself some trouble by endeavouring to preserve the merman, but to no purpose, for before he or his people could get near it, the peasants had cut them both to pieces for the sake of the fat. Uh, whether to make oil or for some uh, culinary purpose is not made clear, though Pontopachin assures us that in uh, some lands, uh, mermen meat is greatly enjoyed. Their flesh is much like pork, particularly the upper parts of their bodies, and this is a favorite dish with the Indians, broiled upon a gridiron. Adding that the uh, poor hunted creature makes a lamentable cry when drawn out of the water. It's hardly for food, however, that the creature is most frequently prized. Older stories represent the merman as much more human in behavior, not only able to speak the language of the sailors who capture him, but able to foretell the future, making mermen a valuable catch. This seems to be a trait particular to mermen of the northern seas. An Icelandic folktale I'll relate highlights this. It's usually given the title Then Laughed the Merman and makes use of a plotline first laid out in the 14th century Half Saga or that of Half and his heroes. The more recent telling I find related in the 1896 volume Scandinavian Folklore by William Craigie. Um, in it, a fisherman finds a mermaid tangled in his nets and drags it aboard. Though it seems to have the capacity for speech, it ignores the fisherman's questions. He leaves it to silently sulk and sails for home. 
Bringing the merman ashore, he is greeted on the beach by his wife and dog. The woman he kisses, but the dog, over-eager in his greeting, he kicks aside, provoking grim laughter from the merman. The fisherman asked at what he was laughing. At folly, said the merman. As the man went homeward, he stumbled and fell over a little mound, whereupon he cursed it and wondered why it had ever been made upon his land. <laughs> then laughed the merman, who was being taken along against his will, and said, Unwise is the man. Arriving at his home, the man imprisons the merman, who continues to carefully observe the man. When he throws a tantrum over his shoes, which were given soles too thin for his liking, the merman remarks, Many a man is mistaken that thinks himself wise. All of this is a great annoyance to the man who, the next day, brings the merman fishing with him to keep him under his watch. During the outing, the strange creature continues to chuckle until the man can take no more of it, furiously demanding the merman explain at what he is forever laughing. At your folly, man, said the merman, for your dog loves you as its own life, but your wife wishes you were dead. The knoll that you cursed is your treasure mound with wealth in plenty under it. So you are unwise in that, and therefore I laughed. And those shoes? They will serve you all your life, for you have but three days to live. And with that, the merman dives from the boat and swims away. You've just heard a bit from the 2018 Swedish film Draug, a horror story set in the 11th century that follows a rescue party sent by the king to find missionaries lost in the pagan outer reaches of the kingdom. Along their way, they're menaced by a draug, or it would seem droga, uh, the plural. Uh, it's an old Norse word used throughout Scandinavia for a walking corpse, usually guarding its grave or an underground treasure. Its uh, folklore attributes are shifting, and the film I've mentioned likewise represents the creature in an equally ambiguous manner. While the drog itself goes back to medieval literature, somewhat more recently, and in specific locations, namely the north of Norway, a folklore has evolved around the notion of a havdraug, or sea drog, the uh, last of the uh, dreadful nautical entities we'll be discussing in our show. In life, these horrible figures were sailors, those who died at sea and underwent this uh, dreadful transformation. William Craigie describes the sea drog in his 1896 book, Scandinavian Folklore. It haunts the sea, utters a terrible shriek, and is described by fishermen as a man of middle height dressed in ordinary sailor's clothes. Some say he has no head. Others describe him as having a tin plate on his neck with burning coal for eyes. He can assume with various shapes and generally haunts the boat sheds, in which, as well as in their boats, the fishermen find a kind of foam which they think to be the drought's vomit. 
and believe that the sight of it is a death warning. Some would argue that the sea dog can take on a uh, less human form, being uh, larger than a mere man, for instance. It's also common to see them described as not being headless, but with heads consisting of knots of black seaweed. They're often observed at sea, traveling in half of a broken boat, missing its stern. There seems to be little of the living human left in these horrible beings, and while they may not directly attack sailors, their appearance, and particularly their notorious shrieks, either foretell or indirectly cause death and disaster. Olaus Nikolaisen, a self-taught archaeologist and folklorist, in his 1879 collection of stories from his region of Norway, Folk Tales of Nordland, describes the draug and how it... Often comes aboard the boat with the fishermen, without their being able to see it. Then the boat grows heavy to row, and the draug can only be cast out by throwing some turf from the churchyard into the bows. As with ghosts elsewhere, or the figures of the wild hunt, the dog often makes his appearance on Christmas Eve. We see this early on with the 13th century saga of the people of Eri, in which the dead sailors of a sunken ship show up as dripping wet drauga at a Yule feast, bringing with them the outbreak of sickness and death. In the early 1900s, Norwegian author and folktale enthusiast Edvard Langset collected a story called The Sea Draug and the Land Draug, set on Christmas Eve. During the revels, a young man named Olav ventures out to the boathouse to bring in another keg for the Christmas Eve festivities, and he encounters a sea dog perched near a window gazing out to the sea. In brave flash of quick thinking, he shoves the creature and tumbles into the water amid a sizzling plume of sparks and steam. Ola then tears off to the house, crossing a graveyard that lies between the boathouse and his sanctuary. As he passes through, he yells, Up, all you Christian souls, and help me! As he enters the home, he hears the noise of some unearthly commotion, a battle between the dead of the sea and the land, apparently as is evidence in the morning as they find the graveyard covered with overturned headstones and splintered coffins and seaweed. The Christian dead of the land, benefiting from a proper burial, defeat the wild roaming sea dead, who never again are seen in the boathouse. Sea dog became particularly popular in literature of the 19th century, and we'll include one more descriptive passage from the collections of folktales published in a series by Peter Christen and Jürgen Moe between 1845 and 1848. Uh, by the way, you'll hear the term sea fire mentioned here, which is a uh, luminescence upon the ocean caused by uh, phosphorescent algae or plankton or ghosts. On Christmas Eve, he saw sea fire that glittered when it came closer. He heard splashing and terrifying shrieks and chilling, tremulous screams, and he smelled a terrible stench of rotting seaweed. In terror, he ran into the boathouse, and from there he saw the drugs coming ashore. They were short and fat like haystacks, wore full oilskins, oilskin tunics and sea boots and large mittens, that hung almost down to the ground. Instead of heads and hair, they had knots of seaweed. When they crawled up from the strand, 
It shone from them as from birch bark embers, and when they shook themselves, the sparks flurried around them. Når udkikken på valfangerbåden for hver i sigte bliver der travlhed om bord. Manden bag harpunen, skytten er klar skud. What you're hearing is from a Danish newsreel about a whale named Mrs. Haroy, as she was called in America. We'll be uh, closing out with this story, which I think you'll find in turn ghastly and I hope also darkly amusing. It begins with a 75-foot finback whale caught and killed in 1951 near the Norwegian island of Haroya, from which uh, Mrs. Haroy takes her name. Uh, Shortly after she was hauled aboard, she was pumped full of the preservative formalin, uh, seven tons of it. Um, This was necessary in order for the events documented in our uh, newsreel to take place. Mrs. Haroy, that is, the scenes that accompany this audio, those are of groups of smiling schoolchildren posing in the uh, propped-open mouth of the late Mrs. Haroy while she was exhibited on a flat car in Copenhagen. You can see them stepping not so gingerly on the spongy tongue and rapturously gazing upon the 1,600-pound heart that's been extracted and preserved for separate display. The whole thing was the brainchild of a Norwegian rug dealer and impresario by the name Leif Sorgor, who believed such a display, ideally mounted, could be both educational and profitable. Uh, in fact, there are tales of preserved whales displayed on railway flat cars from elsewhere in Europe and America dating back to the 1870s, actually. I'll have a bit on some of those on the uh, Patreon pages. In any case, our Mrs. Haroy ended up traveling to 60 cities in seven European countries between 1951 and 1953. Uh, you might be wondering how those preservatives were working during all this time. It's a fair question. We'll focus on a bit more shortly. But uh, Mr. Sorgor's uh, ambitious plans also included an American tour. So Mrs. Haroy once again traversed the seas to Manhattan, where with the help of promoters from the Cole Brothers Circus and the Skating Spectacular Holiday on Ice, a suitable area was secured at the corner of 69th and Broadway. Lights and banners were hung in a stuffed polar bear, and in a week kayak and a collection of whaling gear were pulled into the show, and the press was invited to a premiere party at which Louis Armstrong was present and presumably sang Now the Lord made a whale long and wide. Lord, Lord, what man of fish? And he swallowed up Jonah, hair and hide. Lord, As Sorkar and Company's contract with the Manhattan site neared its end, it became a matter of concern that another venue could not be found. Uh, that is, until a proposition came from Coney Island. Oddly, very oddly, Uh, from the proprietors of Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs, who uh, apparently believed a dead whale was just what they needed to boost hot dog sales. Um, And it should be noted that this was in April of 1954, a full three years after Mrs. Haroy was uh, first pumped full of formalin. But uh, never mind that for now, the whale was installed behind Nathan's in a lot formerly hosting a burlesque show. And then the summer came, along with an unusual heat wave. 
complaints about the smell, which had begun at the earlier site, greatly intensified, particularly in July. The, the carcass was liberally doused with fragrant pine oil and regular doses of formalin, which were administered by men creeping inside the gutted well by night, making their way along a wooden framework that supported the flush and spraying formalin like their lives depended on it. Uh, but strangely, Coney Island merchants still complained that the scent of whale death was driving away customers. Whatever appetite for hot dogs there might have been in April was long gone by July, when an article from the uh, 21st of that month in the Brooklyn Eagle reported that unladylike odors were wafting from Mrs. Haroy. And the city had begun threatening legal action, $200 fines, 30 days in jail, if the carcass were not removed. But it was not immediately removed. Something even worse happened. The whale caught fire. And it's not clear if it had to do with the formalin vapors, which can be flammable or wiring or what, but Mrs. Haroy and her display enclosure burst into flames on July 12th. But that was not the end either. The whale was burned, but not burned away. Their scorched, decaying moneymaker remained on display for another nine days before those behind the fiasco finally organized crews to uh, hack up the beast and haul it to a garbage scout whisk it off to Staten Island where it was buried. Anyway, uh, something to think about next time you bite into a nice juicy hot dog, Nathan's or otherwise. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen. You don't have to write anything on those. Even the star ratings help us a lot. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours of work that go into each episode. Pledged commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 or higher level now receive a short extra episode. These shows are about 20 minutes and include a dozen or so strange historical anecdotes pulled from the old books in our library, all dramatized with sound effects and music, of course. We also have the uh, bonus candle featuring a skeletal Saint Notburger, as well as two different mystery kits, each one with unique offerings. And we still offer my Krampus book and the show soundscapes you hear in the background. I believe we're out of the t-shirts that were available only to patrons, but we'll be getting some more of those within the next few months, I would imagine. And I'd like to welcome those generous souls who have pledged their support this month. Thank you to M. Didact, Avia Real, I hope that's the right pronunciation, uh, Kelsey H., Brad Finch, Philip Wilgus, uh, Ryan Holiday, and Jenny Matisiak. I've been offering some comments directly from our new supporters, but most of this group uh, thus far are enjoying their right to remain mysterious, which is always a good way to remain. But I did hear from supporters like our new sign-up, Ryan Holiday, who was raised in the mountains of southeast Kentucky and is interested in Appalachian folklore and would like a show on granny witches, which 
certainly could happen. Jay Logson listens nocturnally, very appropriate, at his overnight shop, and found us through my Krampus interview on the Weird Christmas podcast. Angelica volunteered that she's a fan of history and the supernatural and listens to the show while working at her programming job. And Lucy Porter, who recently renewed her support, listens to the show on walks around her neighborhood, hopefully in the dead of night. And thank you to Dennis Bashaw in California for generously upping his pledge. And I certainly want to thank our Icelandic supporter, Hrapshina Ross, for her much-needed help with uh, pronunciations in her native language. But in Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.